Hold back. Keep quiet. Memories are forever. The status quo can be appealing to many. If it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? Change can be frightening and threatening because of its uncertainty and the risks it might entail. So we avoid it. What if change needs to happen because it is what is best? What if change needs to happen because it is more trustworthy than the status quo? What if change is necessary to enable us to better proclaim God's reign? Hold back. Keep quiet. Memories are enough. That was the word of caution given to the family. The five sisters were in the same mental space, but each functioned with this beautiful individuality. Malo took inventory of supplies they needed that they would pick up that day as they were out and about. Noah was muscling in the water they would need for the day. Hogla and Milka, they worked silently together, reinforcing the tent seams. And Terza, Terza was pacing, ready to burst. Hold back, keep quiet, memories are forever. She said with, with an edge in her voice. These words run repeat in her head, having heard them the night before. Rules are rules, Mala said unconvincedly. Our laws and traditions shape our community and our culture. They give order. Weighing her words, Terza snapped back with control. Just because there are rules doesn't mean they are right. This is not justice. Maybe the order needs to change, whatever the risk. The night before, the five sisters had gathered with friends to talk about their shared frustrations and their dissatisfaction. The rules of the land created an injustice in their lives and in the life of their widowed mother. There was no inheritance for any of them because of a legal catch-22. Why would you want to inherit anything? It's too much trouble, said one friend. Be thankful for what you have, said another. Remember the good old days when your father was around. Losing your land doesn't stop your memories. Hold back. Keep quiet. Memories are enough. Each of these phrases denied them the opportunity to be restored. After goodbyes to friends that night, the sisters quickly chatted. They were all in agreement about the injustice, but they weren't sure how to move forward. Coming forward to leadership to point out such an injustice had a very high risk. Their father had taught them history. They knew what happened in the past to people who came forward. Israelites coming forward about how lame manna was and having no meat. Plague. Miriam and Aaron coming forward about Moses marrying an outsider and his superiority. Leprosy. Three people come forward and expressed doubts about Moses' leadership. The ground opened up, swallowed them and their families, and then closed back up. The people got it the last time. People were running around shouting, the earth is going to swallow us too. It would take massive conviction and an incredible amount of courage in coming forward. There was no conclusion that night. All the sisters agreed. They would pray through the night. They would seek the Lord and get whatever rest they could. Now the morning, Terza's words rung true. Whatever the risk. 
They wanted peace, but it would take coming forward. They wanted justice, but they would have to speak up. Their coming forward would either change inheritance law forever, restore the forgotten to a place of value, or the earth could swallow them up. With courage in her soul, Noah stood in the center of the tent and reached for her sisters. It's time for prayer. Some prayers are whispered. Some are said independently. And this was a time for communal prayer, sung together to unite the sisters and to hear from the Lord. Oh God, will you restore us and grant us your salvation? Oh God, will you restore us and grant us your proclaims the Lord our God proclaims peace kindness and truth shall meet justice and peace shall give of the oppressed and break their chains. Let righteousness and justice go out before you.
vindication will shine down forth as the dawn. Your people will be called repairers of broken walls, making straight the path to proclaim His reign. Oh God, will you restore us and grant us your When we sing, we pray twice. The five sisters made eye contact with each other and started out the door together. They had a short walk to collect their prepared words while weaving through the Israeli encampment that stood between them and the leaders they needed to speak with, the people at the top, the people that made decisions. Leadership was... Moses, the Moses, the one whose face shone brightly after encountering the Lord on Mount Sinai. Eleazar was there, the head honcho, high priest, the priest of all priests, the one who gave responsibilities to all the other priests. Eleazar would eventually commission Moses' replacement. Huge responsibility, huge authority. All the tribal chieftains would be there as well. This was going to be very public with all the leaders in a place of holiness and authority. They would be right by the ark, the vessel that contained the tablets with the Ten Commandments on them. The five sisters were nobodies. They had zero pull with these people in this space. And so without being summoned, they still spoke wisely, without insult, and with great faith in our creator. In only four sentences, they presented their case with full awareness of God's laws and their own people's history. Supporting their right, their familial right to the land, they declared their father was not part of a previous rebellion. This land, this familial right to the land, was, because of his innocence, divinely his. But because he had no sons... There was no land. So what happens next in such a situation? The rule in Israel was that only sons could inherit their father's property. If a father died without sons, property would not be given to spouse or daughters, but to other male members of the family. With such a property transition, an honorable name and a right to property for future generations could be lost forever. Their mother, now a widow, had she been childless, could have married her husband's brother in hopes of having a son, a standard leveret marriage. This was the common tradition that a childless widow could marry her brother-in-law. This was to ensure the widow would be cared for. But this couldn't happen. Although the five daughters were not people in the eyes of the law, 
considered for land inheritance, they were people enough to prevent the law from providing for their mother. She couldn't marry again because she did have children. That's the catch-22. To end their argument, the daughters boldly proclaimed, give us land among our father's relatives. Moses' response? Silence. No people talking. No earthquake rumbling. No leprosy. No ground opening up. Moses wasn't ready to answer. It was complex and yet clear. So Moses went to God, the creator of life's order, and God responded. The daughters of Zelophehad are right in what they are saying. Moses, change what you have ordered. Tell the Israelites that if a man dies without a son, the inheritance goes to his daughters. God had spoken. This wasn't an exception to the rule. This was a change in the rules. All daughters from this point on, not just Zelophehad's, all daughters were given rights to, in to inheritance. Oh God, you have restored us. The story of the five daughters of Zelophehad found in Numbers 27 provides a message of hope for those that face injustices. I think their story is a beautiful legacy, often unknown, that encourages us to think differently about a fixed destiny or that divine justice has abandoned us. God invites us to be part of the plan to restore humanity back to the place of Eden. Addressing injustice isn't just for back then or for some other place. We've seen it in our own U.S. history. As social attitudes change over time, it becomes clear that law and tradition from one time are not trustworthy. It often starts with a single individual calling out for justice. Let justice roll down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. One author writes, in the 1950s, Jim Crow laws seemed reasonable and necessary to many white Southerners, but racist and demeaning to African Americans. These laws were finally changed, not because of majority public opinions, but because they were unjust. Even the United States Constitution was changed when it became clear that slavery was wrong or that women should have the right to vote. This change process causes a great deal of uncertainty and conflict. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for how you've changed my own life. I thank you for you have, how you've changed the lives of other people in this room. Some of those changes have a good deal of uncertainty or conflict, internal conflict or external conflict. Or you guide us in this path towards seeking justice. Help us to understand further and deeper what it means to have an idea of divine justice. We look to you for wisdom. In your name I pray. Amen. Ushers have Bibles. You will need one today. Um, if you didn't bring one, uh, make eye contact with them or raise your hand. They'd be happy to give you one. My name is Nicholas Todd. I am the Minister of Mobilization, and I serve on the pastoral team here at LEFC. Today we continue our series, 
anchored by considering justice, one of the attributes of God. First question, is God a just God? Yes. Yes is the easy, quick Sunday school answer. It's also the right answer. It's also the right answer. When the five daughters of Zelophehad came forward and spoke up about an injustice in the Israelite system, one that was established on the revelation to Moses at Mount Sinai, don't you think friends and others told the sisters, uh, you're wrong, you're crazy? It was injustice, though. If God is just, then God's desire is for justice to be served. Let me say it again. If God is just, then God's desire is for justice to be served. So take a second to think about justice. What is justice? Anything come to mind? Image-wise, you might think of Lady Justice. Lady Justice, shown on the screen, has been a symbol of the American legal system for some length of time. Lady Justice is often blindfolded, carries a scale, and a sword. Now, locally, I connected with a Lancaster County court judge. I sent, I sent the judge a message and asked about Lady Justice's presence. I was so tickled because the judge sent me a picture, the one you see on the screen. Lady Justice stands on this judge's desk. I also have a connection with an assistant district attorney in San Antonio, Texas. So I sent a text message asking if Lady Justice is anywhere at his work site. And he took this next picture and sent it to me. A fountain outside the courthouse. Beautiful against that red brick and with the clouds and the blue sky. But don't let that deceive you. It is still San Antonio, Texas. Uh, it is... Unbelievably hot. I looked it up this last week that uh, San Antonio is considered a humid, subtropical climate. Um, on sunny days in the summer, the actual temp exceeds 100 degrees. I did look up this next week, so don't worry if you're concerned. They have cloud cover coming in, and it'll only hit 98. <laughs> Lady Justice is our symbol for justice. The blindfold represents being impartial, that regardless of wealth, power, or status, justice will be applied equally. The scales represent the measuring of evidence between the two parties involved in a case. The sword is a symbol of authority. Think about what we might see when someone is knighted in other cultures. The person who is being knighted is touched upon the shoulders with a sword blade. Strength and authority right there. It also communicates that justice can be swift and final. The text in Numbers 27 addresses justice related to inheritance for the daughters of Zelophehad. And the final decision from God for all people can give humankind a wider understanding of justice for all image bearers, all of creation. I believe our other text for the day found in Luke 15 it challenges us to have a deeper understanding of our Savior and his message. It also involves inheritance and ends with justice being served. If you're using one of the church Bibles that was just passed out, we're on page 978. Uh, we're in Luke 15, 
starting in verse 11. It's the story of the prodigal son. That's what this section of Scripture is commonly called. I don't know how many times I've heard it before, really. I think it's pretty safe to say that it's decently well-known, unlike perhaps the daughters of Zelophehad. Find Luke 15.11 on page 978 in the church Bible, in your own Bible, or use the Bible app. While you're turning there, I want to talk about verses 1 through 10. Ten verses, two interesting stories precede the prodigal son, and I believe they serve as an intro to what Jesus is trying to teach. And listen for this pattern. Someone loses something. It is searched for. That something is found. Celebration follows. Verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2 tells the reader who is there and what the problem is. Tax collectors and sinners, they were trying to be with Jesus. Pharisees and scribes, they don't like this. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. We know the problem, and we know who is there. Verses 3 to 7, a shepherd loses one of the sheep from his flock of 100. The shepherd leaves to go looking for it, it's found and carried home. Rejoicing occurs for the one that is found. Jesus says in a summary statement in verse 7, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to. You like that, right? Except I, I do often leave this bit of text wondering, wait, wait, wait. There's rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. What does the sheep story have to do with repentance? Did the sheep repent? I was bad. <laughs> Sorry, Ma. For me, the confusion goes on into verse 8 through 10 as well. It was worth it. <laughs> A woman has 10 silver coins and then loses one. She searches for it with more light and some sweeping, finds it, and then tells her friends and neighbors to rejoice. Jesus summarizes with, angels rejoice over a single sinner who repents. The angels rejoice. You like that, right? Except I leave this text with a similar feeling. Wait, wait, wait. Who sinned here? Did the woman sin? Who repented? The coin? Can coins repent? These two together, I feel like they're kind, of, they're kind of weird. But Jesus was a master storyteller. His seemingly mismatched summary statements all point to this final section of Luke 15. I believe his listeners in that time would also feel some of the confusion. So he brings it together with this next bit of text. Luke 15, starting in verse 11. Follow along with me if you have it in front of you. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, give me the share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and then squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. 
When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against you. I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I, but the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Did you hear the pattern? Someone loses something. Question for you all. What was lost? The son. The son was lost. Now the son was tired of living at home and living the way his father had put life together. And in a bold move, basically wishes for his father to be dead. You know that inheritance you have for me at your death? Well, I want it now. I can't wait long enough for you to die for me to get it. So if you would, give it to me now. And the father receives this incredible dishonor in stride. Hurt, likely, but still decides, uh, still divides what he owns and gives this son his inheritance. And the son leaves, blows it all, forfeits everything. And when he crashes to the bottom, when his work isn't paying him enough to eat, he realizes that the hired help back home with dad are treated better than this. Verses 17 through 19 also get, get me. I think it's kind of funny. He's rehearsing a speech to his dad. It's a simple little speech, but he's practicing it. He wants to get it right. This is what I will say. The apology should be okay. Oh, okay, I got it. Here goes. So he starts to walk back home, and I bet still practicing this lame little apology speech. Who searches for the lost son? I believe if you use your imagination just a little bit, you'll see it was the father. Because while a still a long way off, the father sees his son. I believe he was looking for him. The son is found. Dad runs out to him, hugs him, welcomes him, and in the hugs and kisses, the son starts his rehearsed speech. But dad doesn't even let him finish. Here's a robe, shoes, my ring. <gasps> Steak for everybody tonight. We're having a party. Stop, though. Go back. Verses 1 and 2. Look at verses 1 and 2. Who is Jesus talking to in this chapter? Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and scribes, those that have lived by the rules, that worshipped the rules, and that enforced the rules. Why is Jesus talking to the Pharisees and scribes? Because they don't like that he eats with tax collectors and sinners. 
verses 25 through 32. Let's finish the story. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, did you hear that? He didn't even call him my brother. At this point, he is other. When this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The older brother was always the good kid. He acted a certain way. He wanted to be honored for his noble living, for his respect of others, for living by the rules. And while working, he hears music in the distance. And so while taking off his gloves, he asks what going on, what's going on. A party! Your brother has returned. Two brothers. The repentant younger brother is welcomed and celebrated, while the older, loyal brother stands in the shadows, bitter, envious, angry. The lost son, the sinner, repents and says, I will be your slave. Well, the older son, the Pharisee, in reflection of his life of following the rules, bitterly exhales, I have been your slave. Master storyteller. One is willing to be the slave and the other is bitter because he has been one. An idea exists that evil is prevailing. And when evil prevails, the righteous might call for justice. Justice with the sword that they may be taken out and destroyed. That in some way, this is merciful because it is swift and powerful. It makes a statement, too, to others watching. Do you remember Lady Justice? Lady Justice is modeled after Eustitia, the Roman mythological goddess of justice. She's blindfolded, carries scales and a sword. Eustitia is not as ancient as you might think. She was introduced to the people by the Emperor Augustus, also known as Caesar Augustus. It was with a heavy military hand that the Roman Empire expanded and ruled. As a modern-day culture, we continue to elevate her. She was designed by the ruling class, the same ruling class that used a cross to punish those who challenged the empire. 
divine justice is not only about punishment. To view it that way is incomplete. The older brother lived by the rules, was faithful to them, but when divine justice was given to his younger brother, he hates the fact that the father would act in such a way. For reflection, how do you feel about what the younger brother receives? Are you angry that the younger brother didn't get what you think he deserves? Jesus came to restore us, to usher in the restoration of humankind to God the Father. This restoration from lost to found is not supporting everything that has been done in a life. Hear that again. The restoration from lost to found is not in support of everything that has been done in a life. The father did not celebrate the division of his fortune. He did not celebrate that his son blew that fortune on wild living and prostitutes. And who knows what happened during the wild living fully. There are still consequences for behavior. But restoration is justice. We inherit such a restoration. Believing in the justice of God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus means we believe Jesus can save and also usher in something new, the kingdom of God, by restoring all things back into the one that brought forth all that is good and beautiful. The message of Jesus saves. It also restores the dignity of humanity, even in the midst of our brokenness and corruption. Jesus came to restore humankind. Do you believe that? Justice is certain. Again, justice is certain. But it might look different than what we expected. As we move into a time of communion, consider reflecting on these things. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I desire justice, and my justice in my head is often about proving myself right in front of other people. Lord, would you teach me, would you teach others in this room what it looks like for us to have our arms wide to welcome people? So you have a place here that you've been made in the image of God. Would we be willing to work through the consequences as well? Continue to mold us and shape us. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. If you
would like to pray with somebody today, if you want to speak with someone about Jesus, if you just want to declare what the Lord has done in your life, to share it with somebody else, we'll have people underneath the cross that you can be with. As you go about your day today, I want to remind you of something and ask you to pray and remember that sports world one day is happening here at the church today. It's going to get loud. It's going to get crazy. There will be sports. There's going to be yaya and the wawa, which doesn't even make sense. And one of our pastors will be teaching on trust. I ask you to pray for all participants. Before you go, let me send you with this. May God, who in Christ showed us his truth and love, make us more aware of divine justice. May Jesus, his compassion and his behavior on earth, guide our steps on earth. And may the Holy Spirit work in our hearts. Remove the cup of bitterness and hatred and satisfy our thirsts. May the gospel be good news.